0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
1: Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast about the peaceful Republic of Sardun and its aggressive neighbor, Gamibia. Unable to defend themselves from a Gamibian invasion, Sardun sends Major Zahra and General Burn White to ask for help from Megaforce, a secret army composed of elite soldiers from throughout the Western world who are equipped with advanced vehicles and weaponry. The Megaforce leader, Commander Sam Foster, agrees to lead a mission to destroy the Gamibian forces, which are ironically led by his rival and former military academy friend, Danny Moran. Who will win? Will Major Zara and Commander Foster get it on? Will the Megaforce use their laser tanks? Do they know the Gamibian tanks are immune to lasers? <laughs> All of these questions would be answered. Were this a adaptation of the 1982 classic film Megaforce? This is, in fact, just a podcast where we talk about and review films. I'm Danny Moran, and joining me is a man who is unafraid to chase you down using his flying missile laden motorcycle, Sam Foster. Holy shit! This is awesome. We've I'm got a to see this movie. Commander of the
2: Megaforce. I yes, you are. Okay, this week. A pair of westerns and a zombie apocalypse face off to see whose twist on well-trodden genre fare is the freshest. Danny went to see The Magnificent Seven, Anton Fuqua's remake of the classic western, which was itself a remake of the even more classic Seven Samurai. The main difference this time round is that the title refers to the number and quality of Chris Pratt's abs. Jealous, I sought out my own western starring a sexy man called Chris, and ended up watching Hell or High Water, which has Chris Pine in it, and we'll let you know whether British zombie flick The Girl With All The Gifts lived up to its billing as the most delightful Christmas adventure of all time. Plus, Danny gives us an update on his networking and film viewing at the London Film Festival, the press-accredited bastard. Yeah. John Favreau cements his reputation as Hollywood's go-to guy for turning Disney cartoons into weirdly lifelike CGI animals. And we transform the Beano into a string of hit blockbusters. All that should leave just enough time for me, a buttoned-up male unable to share his emotions, to express my bottomless love for Danny, the only way I know how, with a string of 400 terse offhand remarks delivered in a Texan drawl. The words themselves don't sound like much, but the pregnant pauses, my locked jaw, and the sound of the wind across the plains say more than words ever could. Here are the first four phrases.
0: Looks like rain today. (laughs) that shirt don't fit my car needs fixing my leg hurts
2: 396 more where that came from later on in the podcast hey wow my pleasure man
1: my leg hurts too (laughs) (laughs) whatever that means (laughs)
0: Films, 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 lots of films, 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 movies, good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, last von Trier films, old films, new films, some John films, films that star Peter Fitch, films by David Lynch hours long we've got films up to your gills with films, films 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 movies are you feeling comfortable film chat has begun
1: so chris young got in touch he sent us a fascinating uh, relic of the internet he says, film chat challenge, come up with film synopsis for all the titles in this photo, which are in fact, hilarious names of old strips in the Beano. I want to hear what happens in Wee Peam. And he linked us to, as he just said, a list of hilariously titled former characters in the Beano. And before we could, obviously we were like primed to finger some brilliant synopsis just then and there, but uh, we were beaten to it by just visitors to our Facebook page. Including Chris himself, he couldn't resist taking on his
2: own challenge. So um, I feel like we shouldn't get in the way of our no. readers' own, you know, uh, brilliant synopses here. It'd be like going
1: to your kid's Christmas play and you getting up and doing a monologue. Yeah.
2: <laughs> or Shakespeare or something. Exactly. Deeply insensitive. Um, Dougal McQueen is taking on the Beano strip called Hookie's Magic Bowler Hat, or Hookie. He says, Hookie's Magic Bowler Hat is a whimsical Danish comedy drama loosely based on a series of sketches from the mid-80s published in Dagbladet Bursen. It stars well-known Danish TV comedian Albin Simonsen as the eponymous Hookie, a cantankerous recluse whom some suspect can perform magic. The story starts when Lars, a hopeless 13-year-old boy, is caught stealing cigarettes in order to impress a girl in his class. Hookie is in the same police station for drunken disorder. He breaks them both out using his mysterious bowler. Rumours are true after all. In exchange for helping search for his lost dog, Poika, Hookie teaches Lars the tricks of the trade to be able to win the girl of his dreams. A charming coming-of-age drama with a wicked sense of humour that proves the course of love never did run smooth.
1: Hollywood, if you're listening. Commission! Time to get out the green lights!
2: Yeah, I give that one one the green light. If I was in a swivelling chair, I would turn it round to face you, Dougal. And I would say, be on my team.
1: It's a voice reference <laughs> um chris as we just mentioned couldn't resist but comment himself he chose the title big ego he says big ego stars paul giamatti and michael Sarah as ethical free-range chicken farmers whose livelihood is threatened when a huge industrial battery farming company big ego sets up next door an attempt to win over a lucrative distribution contract with ham and egg stores CEO played by John Hamm as himself. Our heroes have no choice but to change the evil Countess Ego, played by Monica Bellucci, to a hatch-off, who can create the biggest shipment of the nicest, tastiest eggs in time. All love and tenderness, singing to hens, dressing up like chickens and sitting on eggs, hilariously taking lots of hens out on a bend during Los Angeles, win over inhumane battery farming. Big Ego is a sunny-side-up kind of comedy with the gags that go over easy. I mean, I've got to applaud the level of egg punning there. Yeah, that sounds that sounds excellent. You are
2: applauding it quite literally.
1: Do you just say excellent, or do you just say excellent?
2: Um, I said excellent, but you you picking up on that was very impressive. (laughs) Not not (laughs) excellent. No, I considered saying excellent, and then I was like, no. (laughs) Um, I like the name Contessa Ego. Dougal points out that um, Big Ego, the actual comic strip, is cool. Big Ego is an ostrich who, despite being male, lays eggs, eats his own eggs for lunch, and also throws them at criminals to fall their plans. Yeah. That's pretty great.
1: I knew that already, actually. Did you read Big Ego yourself? Big Ego is on the front cover of the first ever Beano.
2: Really? Yeah. And what does the front cover of the first ever Beano depict Big Ego doing? I think just exactly what just said. <laughs> He's eating eggs for lunch, (laughs) staring them at criminals. Yeah. Um, Nick Austin, he's got a synopsis for a movie called Little Dead Eye Dick. Have you... Is that the one that you used to read?
1: No. You ever read Little Dead Eye Dick? Well, my Beano reading days were like the sort of 90s, so most of these had been phased out by this point. Dead and gone. All right. This is what this one's about. Being killed off. (laughs) In a dramatic (laughs) storyline. Yeah. (laughs) Um
2: a black-and-white silent art house movie about an unnamed man, played by Christian Bale, who undergoes medical trials to pay off crippling debts. He awakes to find that his tiny penis now has consciousness and two blind eyes. The film then bursts into sound and colour and unexpectedly becomes a romantic comedy about Christian Bale falling in love with a woman whose vagina has a nose. Finn. Sounds, sounds, uh... Well, I don't think there's any other way to interpret little dead-eye dick than that synopsis. (laughs) We peem. Julian Duane suggests that Wee Peem could be a uh, Ken Loach movie continuing his exploration of life among Scotland's working class with a light-hearted comedy-drama about a budding featherweight boxer with a chaotic family life. Sounds pretty plausible, to be honest.
1: Yeah. We cool I, Wee Peem, though. <laughs> or my name is Wee Peem. Yeah. <laughs> or looking for Wee Peem. I'm just...
2: You're just going by Ken Loach movies with... Um, names in the title, yeah. It's well established that Ken Leach doesn't make movies with just a name. It's always a few peem other words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we peem come home. That sounds good.
1: <laughs> and finally, Nick Austin contributes Whoopi Hank. He says a superhero movie about a man called Hank, Toby Maguire, who is bitten by a clown while visiting the circus. Overnight, the bite transforms his body, turning his skin red and bloating his stomach to ten times His original size. He has become a human whoopee cushion. The appearance of a deadly supervillain known as the Schoolmaster forces Hank to use his powers. The appearance of a deadly supervillain known as the Schoolmaster forces Hank to use his powers for good, but will his high school crush fall for him, or will she just be unable to see past his hideous deformities? I like the
2: element of body horror that Nick Austin is it's introducing. It's like a Cronenberg movie. Yeah, with with both of his both of his things. Well, Little Dead Eye Dick is a bit like uh, Kafka or something. Mm. You know, except instead of turning into a beetle, your your dick sprouts a face. And uh, and this is like the fly. Except I instead mean... Instead of turning into a fly, you're turning into a whoopee cushion.
1: It's like your dick sprouting a face. is like the male equivalent of the sort of v- vagina dentata thing, right? What would be worse than if your dick could talk to you? Yeah. After what you've put it through.
2: Um, <laughs> are you talking to me directly or just men in general? Men in general. I think if... You're not like... Uh, if any part Sam's, of Sam's, if I could give Sam any curse, it would be his <laughs> dick being able to talk to him. Because I'm, what would it say?
1: My, well, my point is that if any part of my body was to get consciousness, yeah, I think my dick would have the most beef with me. Right. <laughs> okay. I and don't, I don't want, think. And I don't think I'm alone. I don't. I don't <laughs> want to explore that issue any any further. No, yeah, I just think in general, you know, it's got the roughest deal of all the appendages.
2: Well, it depends on your perspective. If it's from the perspective of a dick, that's that's probably what you know. It's probably fine. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you were a dick, and your job was, you know, to just um, be a sort of
1: don't dick. Explain to me (laughs) (laughs) to be a conduit
2: for fluids of different kinds and stuff, and just be a dick. I think you'd probably be like great. The question is how you're treating your dick, you know, and like if you're like trimming and shampooing and moisturizing and you know what you're right, cleaning and you know.
1: It was arrogant of me to assume I knew what was best for my dick. Yeah,
2: exactly. I think mean, let's 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 wait until your dick develops consciousness and then we'll see what what your dick thinks, you know?
1: See what my dick has to say about this.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's the fairest approach, isn't it? Anyway, good dick chat and uh, thanks. Thanks Chris. We haven't joined in the game ourselves, but there was so much content that, you know, why do we need to engage our own brains when we can engage those of our listeners? Exactly. Thanks listeners. Thanks. You all rock, Danny. You have been going to more films at the London Film Festival. You've been watching an unholy number of films.
1: Yeah, you've probably noticed how I've grown a bit distanced from you and I don't return your calls or texts anymore.
2: Yeah, you don't. I'm constantly sending you messages on Facebook and you never reply to them.
1: Well, you know, me and Bradshaw are just watching movies, sipping our lattes. Fucking Bradshaw. We're like, what's the best Godard? He's like masculine feminine. I'm like a band apart. We get in a fight and then we laugh about it. He's my best friend. What a pair of cunts. (laughs) We are a right pair of cunts thinking about it. Yeah, no, it's still cool. How's, like, your, how's your ass doing? Asleep or awake? <laughs> I mean, it, it varies depending on the quality of the film. Sure, I imagine, today, yeah. There's been a, today there was uh, the first stinker of the festival. What, a true stinker? Yeah, a bad movie. Um, tell us about it. Um, it was the first film of the day. It was called A Dark Song. It's about a woman who hires a... Um, guy who is a, a magician like a black magician involved with the occult to do this complicated ritual so she can talk to her dead son and it is boring <laughs> as fuck <laughs> it's good it's like a horror movie or? yeah it's like a horror movie it does have quite a not a good ending but it, it commits to the premise in a yeah. way which is admirable um, that's what i thought about knowing yeah
2: the uh nicholas cage movie where it, where it's like what happens when the numbers run out and the numbers run out the numbers yeah. run out yeah, yeah exactly So it's like that that movie is total nonsense but it does at least
1: go from a to b you know without yeah, yeah. flinching it has that going for it but it was just really um boring bad <laughs> bad central performance by this woman who had like a pretty impossible character she was like woman on the edge of sanity and like mm. uh it's mainly set in this house and just involves them doing complicated occult drawings, which I imagine the director, who also wrote it, was really interested in. But was, you know, there's only so much chort you can watch being drawn on a floorboard; today. Yeah. it's boring. Where's the movie from? Uh, it's Irish funding, but the leads are British I or see, doing okay. English accents, and it was just boring as hell. Any 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 names uh, attached to it? Um, Steve Oram was there only was there only like oh, two yeah, people. yeah, the guy from Ah are... and Sightseers. And the, sightseers, yeah, with the big ginger face. Um, it wasn't very good. All right. What else What else do you see? I watched a, a film which I don't think is very good, but it was entertaining called King Cobra, which has James Franco as a sort of insane man child gay pornographer. Yeah. It sounds like a dream role for him. He is very well cast in it. And his sort of. Um, I think if you find James Franco. I don't know. This director has obviously looked at James Franco's output over the last five years. He's like, I know exactly the kind of character which would be well in your wheelhouse. And he's like playing this guy and it's a pretty hilarious sex scene with james franco oh yeah yeah where he's like boyfriends having sex with him and he just goes like fuck my ass fuck my ass
0: <laughs> fuck my ass, fuck my ass!
1: And he's like really going for it it does sound good
2: um say so franco yeah it sounds like he's trying to create material
1: for a future comedy roast yeah <laughs> well that's the thing about this film. It's very weird. The tone is all over the place. And that's definitely one of the sort of out-and-out comic moments. Uh, but I don't know. It's like, because it's all about um, gay people and this true story about this, um, mm-hmm. this sort of porn business in California. But uh, the tone was just, I don't know what kind of movie it was. I hope the Maybe fuck my stupid. ass
2: scene was lifted from the factual
1: details of the you yeah, know, the story. From like a police transcript.
2: Yeah. And they were like, well, this, this might go tonally down a bit weird in the movie, but unfortunately it is what happened. Well, the way I describe
1: it is that if it wasn't a true story, you'd think this is movies all over the place and Mm. and uh, weird and like really put together. But the fact there's a true story doesn't quite excuse that anyway. You know what I mean? They haven't dramatized it enough. Even if what happened happened, it still feels like a badly made film. Sure, but I felt like that. Well, that happened. It's like, well, you know, that's not good enough. Filmmakers says I press accredited man. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it wasn't very good. And I saw like a mental Bollywood film called Misera, which was um, quite fun, but just quite bad. Why was it mental? Um, it had this very funny, uh, like I think it's like a sort of tra- traditional Bollywood movie in that the sort of plot is sung at points by a sort of omniscient uh, narrator-singer, but because it's all in uh, Hindi or some Indian dialect, the translation is very literal. So it's like you just you just hear like all these vowel sounds and it's like you know my beautiful princess I'll ride twenty thousand miles to see you whatever and it's this really complicated phrase it's like ah yeah. like every five minutes or so when something dramatic happens and uh, really broad strokes really melodramatic uh, Were there terrible any sort CGI of fantastical elements yeah it's like about this uh, real life uh, doomed r- romance and it's intersected with like a sort of mythical tale which is like the same story but they're all on horseback and shooting arrows and it's a bit like a sort of Zhang Yamo movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's kind of entertaining. I wouldn't rush to see it, but <laughs> you know, it's like, why not?
2: I but, think that, that sounds like a technique that they could use in other movies. The singing, yeah. the
1: singing narrator. Yeah. If *Magnificent seven had a singing narrator now, yeah, it would have gone up a whole of a star in my book.
2: Mm, he's got two guys now, but he's <laughs> looking for a third. Where's he going to find one for his crazy plan? <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. He successfully got a third guy, but he needs at least four more guys. What? Yeah, something like
0: that. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. Emma Chamberlain's film is hated, Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated, Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped, Matt Damon's in a viral vid, Michael Bay's made a mint, that's the news that's fit to print.
2: John Favre has had a cool career. He used to be this sort of uh, cute bear man actor in swingers and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Then he became a director, and he launched the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Iron Man, gave him an eternal executive producer credit and stuff. And uh, the latest twist in his career is now he takes cartoon animals and and he lavishes CGI money on them. Makes them into more expensive cartoon animals. Makes animal. them into more expensive, still kind of cartoon animals. Yeah. You know, and uh, he's doing that again. He did that very successfully with the Jungle Book. Um, and uh, he has been tapped by Disney to oversee a similarly, a presumably similarly done remake of The Lion King. Um, the question would be, why? 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 Well, I don't know. I don't think the Jungle Book had a very good reason to exist. Well, it had at
1: least one human character. It
2: had one human character. <laughs> right yes i and, mean it doesn't actually say here that they're going to do it um or it does say they're going to be of the digital variety i assume it'll be the same as the jungle book i was i was briefly wondering if they would do some kind of exciting adaptation of the musical or something and just have actual people but presumably not Can't well a blockbuster that way
1: yeah i guess if you want to see a live action version of the lion king the broadway show has been running for like 20 years now. yeah exactly right yeah. And it's won all these awards and the you know if you're doing a live action version, it's cool to see all that puppetry uh done live, but uh, yeah, like how can the film be at all different to the original like they now well, just... It's just the lines will look like real lines.
2: The scar on scar's face is gonna look like a real scar, you know you won't be looking at it like someone just drew that you will be looking <laughs> at it like someone painted it for over a period of
1: weeks and months. it's gonna be sick, mate. It's weird. John Favreau like you were saying he used to be cool and now he's just a money-making machine. He's so money, but he's in the so worst money. possible way. Well, it's weird because he made this film Chef, which if you've seen is a a dream John Favreau had where he made delicious food and then Sofia Vergara and Scotty Hansen tried to sleep with him and he went on a truck with his kid and just drove around America making more delicious food. Um brilliant. And like but that I don't think was a very good film, but it was like a sort of commentary Like it's a bit like Ratatouille in that the food was like a sort of uh, metaphor for his career. Like he was in this big restaurant chain and like forgotten his roots as a sort of chef, so he had to like rediscover his indie roots. And then he's subsequently just gone to the biggest, hugest movies uh, you can do, right? The most commercial and sort of studio films you can do. He's working in like Peter Express, basically. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Do you think it would just be like a hard R if it was? CGI because the the death of his dad would just be a bit too horrific if it's really real. How does uh, Mufasa how does he die? There's a stampede and he's climbing some rocks uh, to get away from the stampede up like a sort of cliff face thing, like a valley ravine thing. Yeah, and Scar played silky smooth uh, Jeremy Irons voice, Mm -hmm. uh, just scratches his paws, so he falls. Excuse me, and that's the noise he makes as he falls. (laughs) Yeah, it's sort of Brian Eno esque. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel you know a bit like in the way that some of the CGI jungle book was a bit scarier purely because it's live action. Because mm. you know, Lion King has it has its dark moments. That's true. It would just you know how they're going to keep a. Presumably, they want to go for a U, right? Or a PG, widest possible audience. Yeah, but then, um, unfortunately, some gifted animation team will spend months
2: and months showing Mufasa's bones being broken and his like, <laughs> jaw being crushed and smashed and his organs spilling out and stuff. And they'll be like, well, we've got to put it in here. It's cost $50 million to have his liver bursting out of his chest when a wallaby stamps on it. Like,
1: <laughs> 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 you know what? I'm telling you, something on this film now. That scene alone.
2: <laughs> the sort of epically grotesque M- Mufasa explosion scene.
1: The Mufasa explosion scene was the best scene in the movie. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, that that way you really feel bad about him. And you really want Simba to succeed.
1: I feel like if he just dies painlessly you don't really give a shit. You could get the entire voice cast back, couldn't you? Yeah. Just do it again. Well, probably Simba probably sounds like an old man by now. <laughs> it was Matthew Broderick. Oh yeah? Yeah, and he was, you know... Well, he was only five, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he, was like, he was like 35 when he did that role, so... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why even bring Boba getting them back in the studio? They must have the... Just, you know... just Yeah, <laughs> you're right, I mean, it's only us, Just literally just feed yeah. that machine into some algorithm and CGI it all. Yeah, I mean, I they probably could do that. It would make
2: a ton of money. Re <laughs> Lunging remastered.
3: Let's get this dinner party started.
0: Looks like Sam's got a film to review. He's just getting ready now. Hey Sam, here's a few tips for you that I hope are gonna help you out. You gotta come prepared, try not to rush. Speak directly into the mic. Um, don't sort of use filler words too much and try to avoid talking total shite. Okay, start reviewing now.
1: Sam, have you seen a film with some men in it? Yeah, mate. Men,
2: grumpy, gruffly, grumbly men. Awesome. Men who just talk. They're just sort of men of the soil. Yeah. And that's how they talk. Like us. Yeah. Um, I went to see *Hella High Water. This is the um, film directed by David McKenzie, who most recently directed *Startup*, Up, that prison drama with Jack O'Connell. Um, and it's written by Taylor Sheridan, who um, is an actor. And he also wrote uh, Sicario quite recently. And he obviously loves No Country for Old Men. I feel like... This is either his favorite film, maybe the only film he's seen, Sure. Um, because uh, both of these um, movies owe a big debt to it. It's a kind of modern set Western tale. It's pitched kind of between No Country for Old Men and The Place Beyond the Pines. Uh, Chris Pine plays Toby. He's a taciturn Texan who needs to raise money fast to prevent his mother's ranch from being foreclosed on by the bank. And he recruits his wild ex-con brother, Tanner, who's played by Ben Foster, uh, to help him out. And uh, they start robbing banks, and right, pretty soon awesome. the local police are hot on their heels in the form of laconic bickering cops Marcus, played by Jeff Bridges, and his half-Comanche partner Alberto, played by Gil Birmingham, who you might recognise as the sort of werewolf clan master guy from the Twilight series. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, here's a clip of Toby and Tanner having one of the movie's many gruff conversations, thick with meaningful pauses, where men ain't too good at saying what's in their hearts and stuff like that.
0: You got any idea how much our old Debbie and child support? You got enough in your front pocket to fix that problem right now. You can't spare it, you know that. Maybe we should hit another branch. You know, you talk like we ain't gonna get away with it. I never met nobody got away with anything, ever. You. And why in the hell did you agree to do it? Cause you asked, little brother.
2: So this movie has been really, really well received. I remember when I saw a trailer for it, um, I wasn't like that fast because I thought it was gonna be a bit too sort of macho. Um, but when I you know got this great review, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna check it out. I'm in the mood for this um it's a well-made well-acted drama it's got a few really good moments and a few sequences that work really really well but i didn't find it to be quite as smart or quite as thematically impactful as it wants to be it's a quite a it's a movie that um wants to feel sort of rich with themes you know it's a very like ideas driven movie and there's a lot of uh like it's very quiet, you know, and um, not a lot of action. Probably quite hard to do a trailer for it, you know, in retrospect, because they want to make it look like a thriller. But like large stretches of the movie are quite sort of um, like there's not that nor much going on. It's just characters talking. Sure. And um, it's uh unf- it falls a little bit into just being kind of boring and flat, rather than being sort of rich and dense with meaning or heavy with you know drama, just from the way the characters look at each other and that kind of thing. Um. It deals with big Western-type themes, um, morality and justice and family loyalty and the unintended consequences of your actions. Um, And there's also a bit of social commentary. Um, And I think these are used to create some um, effective dramatic moments in the way that they inform the plot. But I found that the film ultimately pulls its punches a bit by tying up everything a little bit too neatly. So when you leave, you're not really left pondering, and I think that if a movie wants to have great thematic weight, you know, you need a kind of ending which, um, uh, you know, it's like a kind of powerful moment that you you can't interpret right away. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You it, leave space it,
1: for the audience to uh, yeah make up their mind.
2: Yeah, exactly. And and I, the end of this movie is quite neat, and you sort of know whose sides you're on, and everything kind of makes sense. And it's a real contrast to No Country for Old Men, which has obviously influenced this movie uh, because the final act of that movie is a real like gut punch um, and the spirit of the film really embodies the pessimism uh, and melancholy of its characters, whereas this one doesn't. The movie seems a little bit more keen to comfort you, you even though its characters are all very brooding. Um, The social commentary is also a little bit superficial. Um, it's basically delivered through monologues and there's this <laughs> plot point where the banks are bad. Sure. But uh, that works more as just creating a kind of, you know, rich guy villain rather than being a portrait of post 2008 America or something when you kind of feel like it's reaching for that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, Whereas like just having the bank as the bad guy is like a completely standard thing. Like, you need to do a bit more than that. Um the the centre of the movie is in these two pairs of relationships. So there's the two brothers, Ben Foster and Chris Pine, and uh, the two policemen, Jeff Bridges and this Gil Birmingham guy. And most of the movie is like one of those two pairs speaking to each other. Their relationships are developed through some quite good and subtle acting um, and sort of sparing dialogue, which is sometimes fine and sometimes a little bit trite. Um, none of them are like Texan, I don't think. Right. And they're all sort of chewing their way through really actorly text and drawls. Okay. They're all modeling the modeling themselves on like Jeff Bridges' performance in true grit in a way. Yeah, yeah. Or just or, or just like the sort of the spirit of um investing your slow molasses like <laughs> speech with a lot of weight, you know because like there's the accent. Um, they look they stare into the middle distance a lot and uh they sort of express their feelings through these little offhand remarks and they're all like really buttoned up men um you know can't show each other emotions and there's this cliche that men have to bond through insulting each other and having kind of playful brawls yeah Um, sure you twat yeah (laughs) you're a fucking idiot i love you (laughs) the movie is basically like that (laughs) um i think that that Seeing that happen is a little bit tired. It's a bit lame. It's a bit like a locker room kind of atmosphere in a way, and it's a sort of slightly like it's just a bit of a cliche way to see men interact. And also, the relationship's uncompletely dramatized, and this is a big problem with the Jeff Bridges um, and Kilburnian characters because they don't really do anything for like almost all of the film. Shit. They, they hmm. like uh, they the the central couples are kept separate, and they're kind of doing their police work. And like slowly making progress, whatever, but like nothing is really happening. So mostly they're just like chatting about nothing, you know, and sitting around and like encountering colourful Texan locals. And um Jeff Bridges has about eight thousand um Comanche insults. You know, he's always like saying, Why don't you dance around a fire or don't stab me with your spear right, okay. Indian or whatever And that kind of racism is a bit sort of like well it's almost insulting to texans in a way because it's like you know stupid texans probably like a bit racist and it is also just a bit lame yeah um and it's just shorthand for like they actually love each other and you kind of get it you know at first And i didn't like it just tries to build a relationship through repetition rather than through really developing it dramatically um and this is a big issue in the middle stretch of the movie where it's just like really really flat and the movie's action sequences really pop out, but I think partly it's just because there's so little happening. <laughs> and they, it gets a bit repetitious when there's just, like, they, they they characters have a conversation and then they leave and then sort of there's this country rock needle drop, some sort of atmospheric music to remind you that you're in Texas and then they're driving along a country road. Characters are absolutely constantly sitting down and breaking open a beer and putting their hats on their knees or their hats on their feet, you know, and, like, I don't know. It's a bit like... Um, postcard view of texas yeah it's a bit it is it's a bit like that and it's also just a bit like uh, well the director's british right it's a bit limited like in the number the amount of things that people are doing yeah the director is scottish i think right okay yeah so you think
1: it's a bit of a touristy view of
2: well it might be but he didn't write the movie so yeah. you know or maybe like the director doesn't have any more imagination as to what the texas are doing <laughs> except like sitting on the porch and crack and open a beer you know but it's just a bit lacking in activity right um the one thing that i did like from the outsider's perspective or like they kind of felt like it was coming from that is that uh there's this thing in the movie that all of the random texans like half of them have guns and they're all seem to be um desperate to engage in some vigilante justice and it mines a bit of extra drama out of the fact that like uh everyone is armed at any time and it seems <laughs> to make like robbing banks a bit more dangerous and there's quite a good bit um later on in the movie when they go into a bank and it's like much busier than they expected it to be and uh you know you just know that like half these people are going to be packing and it's like you know (laughs) obviously it's terrifying um and i haven't really seen that in a movie before the sort of basically the citizens of each town are sort of a militia i don't know if i'd find that insulting if i was actually from texas but you know it makes sense cool as an outsider it makes sense to me that you know that's the impression you get anyway you know of america's obsession with gun ownership that like it's kind of terrifying that everyone just has this loaded gun on them at all times so it did that it did that quite well um the performances are pretty good jeff bridges is very doing a very similar role to his true yet thing but he's doing it quite effectively even if it's a little bit corny um as this sort of like wisecracking old timer thing um and uh chris pine ha- has a mo- has a few moments of really really good acting but um is a little bit I don't know I think his like the way his role is written is a little limited. He's just like frowns a lot, like grits his teeth, and you know he doesn't say very much. You know he's a he's a real American frontiersman kind of type. Ben Foster has got the best role, um and I think he delivers the best performance. He's like much more wild, and he's kind of this crazy guy, and it's kind of ridiculous. There's a bit in there where he's having sex, and he's like heavens above, look at them titties. <laughs> um and that's found that quite funny um (laughs) but but he like (laughs) he he he, uh he invests his role with a lot of humanity and uh
1: well it was his very committed performances
2: it's a very committed performance and it's not a cartoonish performance and i think that jeff bridges and chris pine were more cartoonish than him when all three characters are probably written with like an equal kind of lack of subtlety um So, yeah, I didn't think it was wholly successful. I I think that it, like, is... The writing is, like, a bit, um, like, dumb at times. Yeah. And, uh, like, too broad. Sort
1: of sub-Cormac McCarthy.
2: Yeah, it is. It is a bit sub-Cormac McCarthy. But the the reason that Cormac McCarthy and the Coen brothers are such a great fit is because they're both, like, brutal in a way. Yeah. And the Coen brothers are, like, super nihilistic filmmakers a lot of the time. Um, And this film doesn't have the boldness to do that. You know, and instead it's a more sort of, you know, traditional kind of story, which is, like, too comforting for a film that wants to portray the modern world and the West as this harsh, unforgiving place. So, so yeah, I didn't think it was that great. I thought it was all right. It's pretty good. Some of the bank robbing sequences are quite well done. You know, I mean, I think that after my deeply... um, intellectual review about themes and stuff i can say that the best bits of the movie just the action bits (laughs) like when when people get a gun when people get like guns out and stuff it's like this movie is now better that was that was my impression anyway
1: less brooding more tits and blood yeah exactly more of
2: those magnificent titties or whatever it is he says (laughs) When he's having sex and uh, and more guns.
0: And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it we poor? Out of Danny for the judgment we're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off.
1: Well, Sam, I saw an equally thematically weighty western. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The many of Since Seven remake, which came out last Friday. It is directed by Antoine Fuqua, who directed Training Day. Uh, the Equalizer, Southpaw, King Arthur, He's many strings to his bow in terms of genre, I guess. And is written by Nick Pizzolatto, who is the creator and writer of the True Detective Seasons. Yeah. And uh, co-written by Richard Wenk, who I didn't know, but I looked up and he wrote The Equalizer and Expendables 2. Awesome. Awesome. And so... These as, guys know guys. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows Magnificent Seven, but it's a remake of the 60s movie, which is a remake of Seven Samurai. And... Basically, in this version, it's set in 1879 and a corrupt industrialist called Bartholomew Bogue, you know he's evil with a name like that, is besieging a mining town uh, and uh, he wants them all to clear out, so they have the land, so he offers them basically no money to pay them off. They refuse. He shoots a few of the good men who stand up to him to make a point. Uh, one of the men he murders uh, has a wife, or a widow now, called Emma Cullen. She like, I'm not stand for this. She goes out and recruits... Uh, Denzel Washington, who is a charismatic, righteous gunslinger, and he then recruits a further six people to fill out the magnificent Seven. And they... each of them recruit a further 35 people, <laughs> and, and each before, of them. <laughs> before they know they've me. So in this version, the magnificent Seven is Denzel Washington, uh, Chris Pratt, who is a card shop and gun hand, Ethan Hawke, who is a legendary Confederate sharpshooter, uh, his friend, uh, called billy played by byung hung lee who is a asian awesome gunslinger and also very good at throwing knives that's important because he's asian uh, a mexican outlaw called vasquez played by manuel garcia ruffalo a huge bear man uh, tracker thing called jack horn played by vincent D'Onofio. and a native american warrior called red harvest played by martin Sensmeyer. excuse me and here is a scene where Emma Cullen is practically shooting her rifle and Chris Pratt turns up for some reason to fire his gun and talk about guns on Guns Awesome, Guns. Pretty.
3: I mean, good. Your shooting is good. Do it again. Sight the lowest part of the V. Cheek resting against the stone. I had a father, thank you.
0: I didn't. Ooh, god dang it, I'm good. Six pounds of pressure, that's all that's required to kill a man. And they say the nightmares never go away. Those nightmares, they keep you up often, Mr. Faraday? You might want to wear some pants if you're fixing a fight.
1: So, I on the I saw this on Monday with my sister. My sister took me to see it. I don't pay for movies anymore. No. And I'd watched a day of uh, art house films, which were, like, operating on several levels and a bit allegorical, and I was like, yes, dumb movie where I don't have to think too much. Brilliant. Uh, but it's really bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so bad I didn't enjoy it. I think it's a badly conceived and executed film, which given the simplicity of the premise is kind of remarkable. Um, First thing I want to say is that tonally, the film is very weirdly pitched. And I think getting the writer of True Detective and Expendables 2 was a bad idea because the actual content of the story in terms of the characters and the scenes are like a fun romp. And like Peter Sarsgaard, who plays the villain Bartholomew Bogue, is like a cartoonish villain. But it's actually very po-faced and weirdly bloody film. And there's very little levity in it. So it's not funny or fun enough to be a romp, and it doesn't have the dramatic meat to be a drama. And so it's stuck in the middle somewhere, and it basically doesn't work and has no idea what its audience is. So remakes have to update themselves for modern audiences. And I think people weren't outraged by remaking the Miniscent 7 because the Miniscent 7 isn't that good a movie. But what it does have going for it is an awesome theme tune, and it had. Uh, cool actors in it of the day and it's a bit like Ocean's Eleven or something the original where it's not a particularly good film but it's just cool to see the Rat Pack hang out but they don't have movie stars in this so much, there's like some recognisable names and they've ditched that and conversated with a more diverse cast, which sounds like a good idea in practice, but this uh, new element to the film is by far its weakest and it's an accidentally quite racist film in that it has um this diverse cast but gives them nothing to do so it's really guilty of tokenism so it's a good thing to have an asian character but when it's defining characteristic is the asian one it's bad yeah and there's a particularly uh such a stupid scene kind of staggering between this native american character and the baddies have a native american character and obviously they have to face off because the native americans must fight each other and, uh, spoiler alert, the good guy wins. And as he kills the bad Native American, he's like, you're a disgrace. It's like, to who? Like, they're not even from the same tribe. What, yeah. the like, the noble savage, you've betrayed this cliche. Yeah, that's really bad. It's like, eesh, it's so, like, <laughs> but it's just so funny how the thinking behind that. Yeah. That, like, this is going to be a great scene, but it's in fact... the Imagine opposite- how epic will be when my two uh, Native American
2: characters finally meet. The audience <laughs> will be desperate.
1: And... Yeah, and the the recognizable names in the cast, uh it's a real mixed bag. Denzel Washington is really bland in it. He just seems to not really be trying very hard, but he's just naturally charismatic. And there's a bit of meta casting in that he's a sort of elder statesman of cinema now and he's the leader of the gang. So that's sort of fine. Uh Vincent D'Onofrio is memorable just because he's incomprehensible. He kind of performs his lines in a sort of high-pitched voice and he's got a big bushy beard and uh that's another problem that maybe the tonal mismatch is like evident in the performances as well. They're all in different movies. Uh, Ethan Hawke is probably the best of the cast because he actually has a character. He's like a sort of man who's ashamed by his violent past. And he does a good line and haunted man acting. Mm. Uh, and uh, But the real surprise is that Chris Pratt is really bad in it. And it's just like a mean version of his sort of shtick. He's very unlikable in the film. And it's a very sort of lazy vain performance where he's just you kind of catch him posing a lot you know he's just loving being a cowboy and wearing the costume and having his gun and it's a bit it reminded me of that bit in guardians of the galaxy which was prominent in the trailer where he's like the bad the aliens are like who are you and he's like star-lord yeah and then the undercutter is like star-lord man i'm star-lord but it's like without that second half of the joke i see yeah it's the yeah. posy starey i'm um, an awesome clint eastwood thing yeah but without the undercutting Thus, making it somewhat unbearable. I'm a bit. I feel like
2: um, Hollywood has misunderstood the appeal of Chris Pratt. It's like when he um, worked out a lot and became super buff, people noticed how unbelievably attractive he is, <laughs> and they were like, "Shit, this is it. We have our next super sexy leading man. Mm. This is, you know, all we need to do is put him on our movies. Everyone will just uh, their knees will turn to jelly because he's so hot, and it will be great." But people don't un- realize that the appeal of Chris Pratt is that. He's extremely likable, you know, funny, self-deprecating guy. And that is a big part of it. Yeah. You know? And and if you can't just, like, turn him into a preening, um, you know, uh, muscle man. And it's... Which is also what he is in Jurassic World. Yeah. And he's, like, really irritating and unlikable in that movie as well because he's <laughs> not being handled well.
1: Yeah. I mean, generally, I was just, like, I was very bored throughout the film. And it's a shame because the Western, I guess, as... And Helen High Water is a, a weird genre in that it's like film noir. It's just a, a setting and a collection of visual tropes rather than a genre like a comedy or a romance. And uh, most American westerns are commentary on America, and you can very broadly map sort of America's view of itself through westerns. Like in the '60s, it's kind of like John Wayne and stuff and then like if you discount the spaghetti westerns because Italians made them and then in the 70s they get a bit more subversive like Lord Josie Wells and then in the 80s it's like Young Guns and Silverado it's like Reagan westerns yeah. and now it's like Hateful Eight Hello High Water like these sort of uh, commentary on America and the racial divides and you know the tensions that underlie it and so there's a sort of a gem of a good idea in The Ministers 7 having a diverse cast having the villain be a capitalist it's all sort of there but it's like, it's the first pitch meeting and they never got past it. And a yeah. bit like, I mean, there's no thematic depth to it whatsoever. So it's a really nothing-y, nothingy movie, but it doesn't even operate on the standards of a romp. Well, the thing,
2: it's interesting because the thing that characterizes um, the modern blockbusters, rather, I think like the way in which they reflect the spirit of the age is um, like nostalgia, basically. Yeah. And uh, references to stuff and things being familiar and like exciting you because you know that thing from something else yeah but it sounds like they haven't really gone this route with this movie no because it's not like doesn't have the it's not all built around you know recapping that bit from the magnificent seven perhaps because they don't you know there aren't
1: individual bits that people remember like well that's why it's it's good for a remake because it's basically like well like the avengers is like magnificent seven you got all the little scenes of recruiting the individual heroes and at the end they all team up and, and that's, have a big fight. And have a big fight. I mean, how can you mess that up? But yeah. somehow they managed. And it's a weirdly um, bloody film without any blood. It's like a 12A where like people are constantly mowed down, but it's kind of consequence-free. It's yeah. a sort of weird, uncanny, violent, but not violent. And it's just a bit incoherent. I think it's just like hard to do an extended gun action scene. Maybe Ben Woodley's Free Fire will prove us all wrong without it just being shots of bad guys shooting, shots of good guys shooting. And you know that only goes so far, and the ending goes on a lot, it goes on and on, and then the very ending is like a real slap in the face. Of the original Seven Samurai and Minus Seven, which had a um, obviously much more so in Seven Samurai, it had a very nuanced take on violence and its futility, but this one is like magnificent. Was you know is underlined and italicized and has several exclamation marks next to it. <laughs> so yeah. I would advise you to avoid. Just watch, Just go bang and watch Seven Samurai. My sister said it was crap. and she doesn't throw that word around lightly.
0: Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The noise is on. The guys are in. Let the chant
2: talking now. All right, moving on to non-Westerns. We also saw a different kind of movie this week. We went to see The Girl With All The Gifts, a little British film that we might not have seen had it not received. Very rapturous reception. And Danny, you suggested we, we go and see it.
1: Yeah, Monday date night.
2: We had date night. Um, You've just haven't, you're not not seen
1: enough movies this week, so you went to see one in the evening. It is directed by Cole McCarthy, who is his first uh, feature film, but he's a TV veteran. He's worked on Sherlock and Doctor Who and is written by Mike Carey based on the book of the same name. And it's set in a near future where some sort of fungal uh, virus thing has taken over uh, the human population and made most of them into these things referred to as hungries which are a bit like the sort of rage infected fast zombies from 20 days later and in an army bunker a group of children are being held there you're not quite sure why one of the children is called melanie and she is a very smart bright seemingly impervious to bad news mm. uh, young girl irrepressible who, spirit who might hold the key to saving humanity and the film quickly becomes a sort of genre road movie tense zombie apocalyptic chase film
2: yeah it's kind of got this s- it's almost got the structure of like 28 days later in reverse yeah
1: that's a good way of putting it thanks good job so we were going to play a clip but there's no actual clips can not find a clip we and the trailer is weird in audio form i think it'd be a bit incomprehensible anyway sam date night what did you think yeah i liked it i thought it was really good i didn't know
2: uh very much about it before going to see it i didn't think I, maybe i saw a, like one of the sort of before you watch a youtube video type ad trailers for it or something but it's not something that i'd paid any attention to so i was aware that it was a zombie film and didn't know a great deal else about the plot couldn't remember who was in it or anything um and uh i thoroughly enjoyed it there's a lot of things i liked about it um the beginning of the movie is really strong and i think it really makes the most of um uh being able to introduce you to a world a step at a time and it does it unfolds that i think in a really effective way and in the beginning each little scene is giving you one new piece of information uh that is um dramatically interesting to learn each time yeah and uh and the way they introduce you to Melanie and what she's like and what Demma Alston's character is like and Glenn Close and Paddy Considine. um, I think that was all like very effective. And um, uh, when things sort of get a little bit more hectic, that's super exciting and and a very effective sequence where it looked like they kind of spent most of the budget of the film. Um, And then once it turns into uh, the more of a sort of road movie type thing, it's like kind of more familiar and is it feels a bit more like a um, traditional zombie movie in a way, but um, I thought it was yeah
1: still effectively
2: effectively no, done. No,
1: I think that's a good way of putting it. I think it's like it's got enough new twists on stuff so that it, like it doesn't feel like it's kind of it's hard to do a zombie movie, especially a movie post 28 days later, which mm. itself is like a sort of hybrid of all the Romero movies, Day of the Triffids, uh, like any sort of post apocalyptic film yeah, it's like it was it kind of did it all in that one film it's like a sort of super remix movie except film. That the zombie attacks are in the spirit of a 90s rave rather than like <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh a lot of it will remind you of 28 days later but they there's enough sort of striking new images in it and the central character of melanie adds a new element to it which you haven't seen before in this type of movie and that kind of pulls you through yeah she's almost like
2: uh it's like you're back in the same landscape but you've got this new device that gives you a new way to tackle the zombies, and uh, and so it uses that in quite a creative way. And I, I liked the um, way that they drew the relationships between the central characters as well, which are sort of archetypes, but um, had just enough meat on the bones to keep them unpredictable and interesting from moment to moment. Like yeah, the way Paddy Considine's character is introduced, for example, like he travels a long way
1: you know, from there, and uh, you know, and I like that. Yeah, I think the performances added a lot more nuance that perhaps wasn't on the page. And um, Glenn Close, who plays a sort of uh, military scientist who's very pragmatic, that's a defining characteristic, reminded me a bit of uh, Viola Davis in Suicide Squad, in that Mm. she's mainly delivering exposition, but she really owns her character in a way that makes it compelling. Yeah, And pretty much everything she says is just information, but she's acting the hell out of it. It's like, Glenn Close, you should be in more movies. I haven't seen you since 102 Dalmatians. What's going on? <laughs> no, she was really good. And there's
2: a there's a scene where she confronts Gemma Arton at the beginning, which is, like, really excellent. Yeah. I mean, that whole
1: sequence, I thought, was, like, extremely dramatic. I think, um, not that the movie... Uh, I was disappointed by it, but I think the beginning is definitely the strongest bit, and I saw at the end, instead of judging it as one movie, I was sort of judging against the movie's own high standards and the beginning of the movie is when it's really galvanized between lean action thriller and interesting moral questions and that's when the two are perfectly in a line and then uh moving on from that is they get a bit more compartmentalized it's like action scene then a bit more moral ambiguity and then action scene sure yeah no that's true and then um the ending uh i wasn't quite sure i feel like it had like one scene too many perhaps you told
2: me afterwards that it was, um, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say, but it's that, that it shares some DNA with uh, I Am Legend, the yeah. book or the story. Um, not the movie. Not the movie, <laughs> uh, which I have not read. So, um, But for me, it felt quite fresh. And I thought it did um, an effective job, even if it was stolen from the guy who wrote I Am Legend. <laughs> Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson, um, of resolving the conflict between the central moral question and the audience's dramatic sympathies because um Glenn Close is uh you know a hard character making hard decisions and Gemma Arterton is a sort of soft-hearted character you know uh going with her emotions and or whatever and so the logic of the scenario would kind of go with what Glenn Close wants and but as an audience obviously that you sympathize with Gemma Arterton mm-hmm. And the way that they resolve that central question at the end, I think, was a nice, um, it, it doesn't dodge the question, but answers
1: it in a way which is like ambiguous, uh, but is dramatically satisfying. Yeah. So if I did have a complaint with the movie, is that I think you don't fully get inside Melanie's head. And I think at times it kind of uh, it's ambiguous in a way which just feels a bit like uh, hasn't been well thought through. Do you think that was
2: like part of it, though? That the the that she is always a little bit like she seems great, and you're like, but maybe she's you know, um, maybe she's actually like evil or something—not <laughs> evil, but you know, she's the, the her she is an, an enigmatic character, and that's part of it.
1: I don't know. I just felt that was like, uh, I don't know. That that's like a for the most part it worked. But I mm-hmm. think there's a few moments where that sort of fine line wasn't as well tread trodden as it could have been.
2: Sure. Um
1: I think the movie shows its
2: budget a little bit. I think it's about a four million quid. Four million. And most uh most of that was
1: Glenn Close. Yeah. It cost <laughs> three and a half million.
2: Um Yeah, and some bits look great. I thought like the the um big action scene at the near the beginning of the movie was very well done. Uh but at other times, I don't know. I think they get around some of the massive CGI landscapes by adopting a slightly painterly style, which was quite good actually. It looked pretty cool um but it did look kind of cheap and i was a bit worried when i was watching the film that i was just being prejudiced more on by thinking it looked like a doctor who episode but then i found out that the guy who directed it was a doctor who director (laughs) well maybe it just does look a bit like that um
1: yeah i think there's definitely the budget is creaking a little bit like it's a very ambitious film visually absolutely and also i just think uh, he doesn't quite find a new way to shoot those kind of scenes yeah sort of uh, visual grammar of guys in military uniforms with rifles wandering through empty corridors. Now you've seen that like a million times, and maybe it's just is, you know, it's hard to find a new angle to shoot that. That's true. That's um, true. But that, yeah, but yeah, it, it was impressive, and it, it kind of picks its moments. It definitely front loads the film. It's like you know, we're going to put the money here and here. And, uh, well it's almost like the first, the, rest of it. the
2: first 20 minutes of the movie is almost um, a, a very innovative short film that feels like that's new and then in order to continue the story it becomes a kind of zombie film um, and uh, uh, and then but it has an ending that makes it you know that sort of justifies the beginning it's not like that's totally different but um, yeah it doesn't maintain the invention that it shows at the start yeah but you know but hey, but hey, but hey! What are you gonna do? I thought it was good. I thought Paddy yeah. Considine is really good in it. Jem Arton is great in it. Passes the Bechdel test with flying colours. Probably the least macho zombie film that I've seen um, in a, in a in a good way. Like it was. It's a film that just uh, without making any big deal of it whatsoever is like has a very diverse cast and uh, yeah, did that and very the um
1: the lead uh, played by Senia Nuana who is very, very good in the She's movie. She's brilliant in it. Yeah, I and she was great in it. And her sort of sunny disposition is a very welcome... We are talking about the sort of bleakness and nihilism, but that's sort often the sort of default function of zombie movies. Mm. And having this sort of wide-eyed kid who's also a zombie is kind of brilliant in yeah. that. Uh, obviously, horrible shit happens, but it doesn't have to be all... Even though they're facing the end of the world's... Someone smiling. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, 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 It's like as though so, you know, it's just a welcome change. I would recommend. Yeah,
2: I think I think it's I think it's good. I think it's one of the um, better films. That's it's it's not great cinema period at the moment, to be honest. Mostly, given movies probably being shown at the festival, but um, but this is definitely one of the better ones out at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's probably the best genre film I've seen this summer. Mm. Yeah, good genre pick. Go see it. Go see it. Support the British film industry. Go see this, and not Magnificent Seven. That film is shit.
0: Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat. Have a cup of tea, maybe make a quick snack and tell a phone friends so you know where she's at. Life, that's enough. Now back to film chat.
2: Listeners,
1: thanks for listening to this episode of Film Chat, which is coming to its end. Thank you so much. Next week, uh, we'll be reviewing De Palma, the documentary about Brian De Palma, and finally, coming to the shores of England, the farting boner corpse movie to beat this year, Swiss Army Man. Yeah, really, really bloody excited for that one. Uh, do
2: you know that my brother told me that he once he had a classmate who um, called up, and he like somehow got some like actor's phone number and called him up pretending to be Brian De Palma. Wow. But I don't think he really knew what Brian De Palma sounded like, so he just called him up and was like, Hello, this is Brian De Palma. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I can't. I've got to. I have to check with him who who that was. It was some sort of name, some <laughs> named actor. Brian De Palma here. I want you to be in my next film, <laughs> Scarface Two.
0: Yeah, I think <laughs>
2: even when he made that phone call, cool, I think Brian De Palma was not in his you know not in his prime, not in his prime. So it's quite an interesting choice, sure, of prank director. Anyway, so um, we'll leave you with some um, exciting music. It's not particularly timely. <laughs> well, but,
1: well, the trailer came out recently, right? The trailers come out for Fifty Shades Darker, you know, building up to its release on Valentine's Day. Yeah, sexiest the new 50 Valentine's Shades. Day ever, possibly 2017. Yeah, and uh, it's got a pretty sexy trailer.
2: Yeah, so the first trailer was a big smash hit, more successful than the film probably, and it featured a cover of Crazy in Love by Beyoncé herself, and she did it in a sexier way than she'd originally done it. The trumpets were gone, Moaning was in, mm. and uh, and this time they've increased the sexiness yet further. Beyoncé's out, Miguel is in, the yeah. R&B singer. And he is just doing his, ap- his utmost to get- make you calm purely <laughs> by singing this song, basically. I think that's the idea. Sure. It's like, if you if you don't have a semi after 30 seconds, the song is not done its like job. even human. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, well, I pride myself on being one of the sexiest singers in the world. You are. Thank you. And I took it as a personal challenge from Miguel. Um listening to this, I was like, sure, this is sexy, sure, am I turned on? Yes, you know, but I feel like I can do better and so I've uh, tried to do the sexiest cover of Crazy in Love possible, just you won't be able to get any sex in this and I'm going to email it directly to anyone who was involved in that film none of whose names I can recall, Jamie Dornan's going to receive a um, mini USB in the post and it's going to contain this mp3 and it's presumably going to end up on the trailer for the next one, the fifty darkest shades you've ever fucking seen, or whatever the movie is called, the, the darkest shades going. Sure. Yeah. So, we'll leave you with that. Get your pants off.
1: Settle in. <laughs> it's time to wank. <laughs> 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 time to get your rocks off. Uh, yeah. Turn the volume up. Prepare to get your rocks off. <laughs>
2: Yes, absolutely. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.
0: the best of me baby, baby. baby your love's got love the best of me you have me you got me, I, you got me I, sprung and i don't I, care who sees. see baby you got me you got me you, you got me. you got me. you got me you got me oh you got me oh, you got me whoa oh, 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 oh. i love Stand so deep in your so eyes deep. I touch on It's so crazy right
2: now. Got to lookin' so crazy right now. You got to lookin' so crazy right now. Got me hopin' your HB right
0: now. got right now. Right now. Lookin' so crazy in love. It's got
3: me lookin', so crazy in love. Sexy, 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 sexy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.